For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. We're back. Welcome to Series 8 of Wardrobe Crisis. Finally. (laughs) It wasn't meant to take this long. I can't believe that my planned break over the middle of the year extended quite so many weeks. But I've been writing a new book and it it just eats up your life writing a book. I'd forgotten what it was like, but you just do nothing but think about the book and it it just takes up all your brain capacity and it's just really full on. Anyway, I've done it. It's finished. I hope it's good. I do know it's about the future of fashion and it's going to come out next year, published by Thames and Hudson in 2023. So thank you for bearing with me and I'm so happy to be back with you because my podcast is my greatest love. I just love this and actually not doing it freaked me out a lot because I feel like it's my main squeeze. Anyway, if you can help us spread the word that we're back with this series, I'd be so happy if you could share on social media and just let people know that we didn't disappear. As you know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. The show is at The Wardrobe Crisis. And of course, you can find our show notes as usual on our website, which is www.thewardrobecrisis.com. Anyway, I did record some incredible conversations while I was doing my book, just didn't actually get to editing and publishing them. So I've been saving up for you some really amazing interviews. And I cannot wait to share them with you, which we'll be doing weekly from now. So no break over December and January. You can take us on holiday with you. (laughs) All right. First up, this is a corker. First up is a brilliant British fashion duo. Or should we call them conceptual artists? (laughs) I'll leave that to you to decide. Or should we just call them ratbags, radical ratbags? They are Vin and Omi. Certainly, they are eco-pioneers. They've been inventing their own sustainable materials for years and generally challenging fashion's conventional way of operating. Now, this conversation was recorded in the Cotswolds over the summer, over the British summer, and it was before Prince Charles became King Charles III. So it's very interesting to hear them talk about their experiences, having met him and worked with him or, well, not with him, with his head gardener at Highgrove House and with the Prince's Foundation. So they've been repurposing plants nettles, willow, and turning it into cellulosic fibre from the grounds of Highgrove House, and also turning HRH's old plastic plant pots into (laughs) jewellery. Hysterical. So you're going to hear all about that. You're also going to hear them telling it like it is about how they think much of the sustainability talked up by commercial brands is frankly rubbish, more rubbish than the plant pots. So, well, what should we say? Vin and Army are just not your classic commercial brand, I guess I'd say. But they are a very fascinating one. Their fans include their good friend, Debbie Harry, who literally models in their shows. I mean, it's amazing. They've actually just made a feature-length film about the far future, or shall we say the end of the world, starring Debbie Harry. So there you go. And actually, I was thinking about their shows. So Debbie is frequently modelling in their shows, as are many other really interesting artists and musicians. And the shows are just brilliant. Like they're definitely some of the most brilliant shows I've ever seen during or before or around London Fashion Week. And I say that because they don't show on the schedule. They're very not establishment, even though they know 
royalty. But it's interesting. You go to their shows and they're rammed full of artists and cool people, but very few conventional media. And I feel like magazine people are scared of them. They know who they are, but they don't go because they're not commercial advertising partners or, you know, they're not part of the, they don't play the game, I guess, which I find riveting anyway. Obviously, I love that. I'm into that. (laughs) So get ready. This one is quite a ride. Let's have lunch with Vin and Omi. Vin and Omi, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Hello. (laughs) We are in a sensational setup. Tell us where we are. We're in your garage. (laughs) (laughs) Shut it. Do you know once I recorded a podcast in a car because the sound's really amazing. It's like a little mini studio. All the foam absorbs all the sound. Oh, really? But we are not there. We are in a... Actually, I, I a Cotswolds, looked up Cotswolds pub. a Cotswolds famed pub. gastro establishment. Yes. Yes. It is famed. It <laughs> is. a famed gastro establishment. Now you're here, it's really famed. Yeah. <laughs> you're exactly. too kind. But we're in Oxfordshire and that is because that's close to where you have part of your setup, where yeah. you are fabric inventors. <laughs> yes. Yes, fabric inventors is one of our titles. Ideologists. Yeah. Ideologists. Kind of. Just yeah. to spark an idea, really. Thank you, Omi, for raising that at the outset because I did want to ask you about that you don't like to call yourselves fashion designers and you use this word ideologists we were talking about it before but tell our listeners what that means to you well I think it's the process of our thinking and the way we think creatively and I think it's too limiting to just be called a fashion designer or fabric innovator or something and I think it's as an ide- ideologist it's such a flawed concept because an ideologist is open to every sort of arguments and it's not a perfect subject. The word ideology to me, I was thinking about this before, can be quite dogmatic. Like our ideology is, I don't know, dot, 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 communism. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I know what you mean. We do have a manifesto on our website where we, where we state what we don't like. And that's a bit like that. Yeah, but, you know, we feel like that. We don't want to work with half the people that other people want to work with and we we do want to make sure that we work with the right people so we have a manifesto so yes that's kind of communism isn't it (laughs) (laughs) we believe it is not enough to produce a new textile or product artwork or designs we can do more by thinking about the origins and surroundings of each project in our fashion work we have no interest in following the planet damaging ways most current fashion business models are run following Exactly. Exactly. I think, and that still stands. Whenever that was written, I think the core for us, the provenance, the sustainability behind any project takes provenance over design. Yeah, design takes, is always precedence over any precedence design, yeah. over anything. I mean, it's like design is secondary. You know, it's it's really allowing ourselves to to be dictated by the environment and what we can extract for fashion or for our work. And I think creating a manifesto helps us, guides us in terms of not straying. It's so easy as a fashion designer or an ideologist or a designer to stray because you're Mm. so engrossed in that project and you don't see the trees from the woods. woods Is it also holding yourself accountable because we were talking before about how sustainability you actually wrote this in an instagram caption the other day as well about sustainability and eco being these buzzwords but they've lost their meaning almost so you know when you go on someone's website and you can click on the sustainability tab and then it says we care 
Yeah, yeah. weaker, yeah, <laughs> overused. As the word sustainability is overused and um, many other new words that are coming into the vernacular are overused. And being an ideology, we mean it. Everything that we do, we mean. We live it, we breathe it, we mean it. Another line from the manifesto, which we'll share a link, you can read it. So I was going to ask, does it help you hold yourself accountable? But another line is, we will not produce fashion in excess for profit or greed. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've never, ever produced anything that's not going to be sold immediately. That's even with collaborations. But... but <laughs> You mostly don't produce anything that can be sold at all. No. Well, there is that as well. You had to throw that in, no, didn't yeah. you? Yes. Well, yes, we um, don't um, sell anything. A really, yes. a really big fashion organization in France, and the boss once told us, he says, you're more exclusive than Chanel because you can't... Scarcity. Yeah, you, you can't buy, buy any. anything. Thin and, we, and we're we, like, oh, that's quite a nice little thing to to have is like no no we don't the, the reason why we don't as well is because everything that we produce has got provenance to it and there's so much social impact educational impact to one dress that we do there's so much story behind that that you can't really duplicate it you know it's, it's i mean not if you if you gathered 20 kilos of nettles and you're making fibers it will make say five dresses or something like that and that's it that's all it makes. Now, do we have the time to harvest 2,000 kilos of nettles? Probably, but that, we're not in the business of only doing that. We've moved on to something else, to chestnuts, to something else. So we don't have time to do that. But more importantly, how can we write a manifesto saying that and then retail stuff? <laughs> Pointless. We can hear a little girl doing her homework, which we like. But by the way, if you can hear that and you don't like it, sucked in. It's happening and I like it. <laughs> Back on this idea, though, about profit and greed, presumably without wanting to put words in your mouth. I have just had lunch with you, so I know you think this. Lots of the industry as it stands now is driven by that. Mm. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I think, I think greed is the thing that's keeping businesses going. Greed is the way that they sustain themselves. They are looking at their profits and they're worried about losing or dropping a million here and there instead of actually thinking about the bigger picture. Large corporations are absolutely terrified of a dip in sales of anything that's been stigmatized to actually mean that somebody's failing dramatically if there's a drop in sales. Because we're always watching the quarterly reporting, absolutely. aren't we? And everyone's And somebody are... will lose their job if there's a dip in sales. What's all that about? What about somebody gaining a job because there's a dip in sales and a, and a shift in quality and sustainability? I think like we, we said, you know, when we started, you know, 21, 22 years ago, and we started as a science scholarship and we started at Silicon Valley and and it was just, you know, just pre in social media and stuff. We never, never imagined Vinanomi would be where Vinanomi is today. It was a, it was just an idea. It was just an idea to understand what sustainability would look like in the future and what sustainability would even mean. Take two. Yeah. <laughs> Can we please describe our latest setup? We had a little hiatus. We had to move for noise one. issues. We may have another one just about to happen. We're yeah. doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can. But now could you describe what you've just set me up with a little portable studio? Yeah, yeah. so Claire is currently under an umbrella holding a mic whilst looking under my jumper <laughs> at her podcast device. Wearing an overcoat and really big wellies. 
Classic uh, British summertime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but back to my serious questions. We were actually in the middle of a very important conversation where we were talking about brands having almost an inability to innovate when it comes to the business model or to consider slowing down. It does present a problem when it comes to sustainability, obviously. But I mean, talk about that because you said when you were explaining your ideology to me that you saw yourself as a problem solver or yourselves as solving problems. Yeah, I think when we, when we first started, you know, 22 years ago, the idea was really to spark ideas, to, to problem solve. And we were really navigating around negative spaces where things needs to be innovated. There's no point looking at positive spaces where things are really solved. Just expand on that. So negative space to you means what, Finn? Negative space means a position that we can do something in. It means that there's something that's gone wrong or some way that we can fix things. We look for negative space, which is really looking for problems to solve. That's how I would say it. Would you agree, Amy? Yeah. So, for example, taking a fabric and then dissecting the process in terms of is there a better way of producing that piece of fabric by bastardizing processes. So, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be spun. Maybe it doesn't need to be woven. Is there another way of bonding it? But your problem would be what? The carbon emissions of the process? Correct. The carbon footprint, the carbon emissions, the chemical interventions of producing a fabric, the bleaching process. And then once you reach that point, then you start looking at what sort of social impact, environmental impact, educational impact you can derive from getting that fabric in the raw state at the first place. So... There's so many processes when you talk about sustainability. So it's not just whether you're using organic cotton because that doesn't mean anything really. Let's go back to the beginning. So one of the first problems you sought out to solve was the unsustainability of conventionally produced latex rubber. Yeah. I think one of the first fabrics that we liked working with was latex and Omi had uh, had some training in uh, working with latex and really enjoyed it. So we thought, right, let's develop this. But the price of latex was really expensive. And also we thought, where the hell does it come from? How is it made? And how can we make sure that we're getting a good deal that's been ecologically produced correctly and ethically produced correctly? So uh, with uh, Malaysia being close to Singapore, where Omi's from, we thought, right, let's nip to Malaysia and have a look. So we looked at a Malaysian uh, latex plantation and were pretty horrified at the conditions and the way that it was produced. And we thought, well, let's get some money together and actually buy our own little chunk of plantation so we can manage it and do it, do things the right way. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know what latex is or where it comes from, Vin, Omi. It comes from rubber trees, and yeah. it's a plantation that you tap on the bark. I think the process where we were, you know, at that time, we were making stuff for Dior and John at Dior and Mark and Louis Vuitton, and we we're doing loads John and loads. as in John. Galliano. Just and John, exactly. mate. Just John. Uh, just John. And How there were so many. Is just John. I know, just John, sorry, <laughs> everyone who's listening. But, and you very quickly... We, we've got this curiosity to want to know what everything is made from, where it came from and stuff. And it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just a curiosity at the time. It was also like frustration that there was no... I mean, transparency. Trans well, I was going to say, I'd try not to say transparency because that's a word that's been imported into this business. 
Um, but but there was no history to the fabric. There was no origins. Provenance, there was yeah. no provenance. There was no way of finding out. And transparency didn't, didn't exist then. It wasn't even a concept. But it was just, you know, we thought, well, we're paying all this money. Where the hell does it come from? Why does it cost so much? When was this? Oh, Ooh, back in 2000. 2000 right in the beginning <laughs> yeah. of 2000, yeah. Yeah, yeah so really it was early a on long, before we started, long time ago. Really, we were just playing around with... You know, we love the fabric so much. And then we thought, right, it comes from a tree. Where's the tree grow? Why does it come from all the way there? Can we grow it over here? No. Uh, let's go and have a look at how it's been grown. And then we thought, hold on, these people are really being treated badly. What's their educational program for the families that work there? How are they being trained? Process, do they know them live on the plantation? Do they know about organic growing methods? Do they know about sustainability? Do they know, you know, how to really sort of make sure that the future of this plantation is good for the whole environment? We went in kind of as, even though Omi's from Asia, we look like white supremacist sort of bad bastards. <laughs> Did you have that in. hair? No, I'm not discussing my hairstyles with you, Claire. It's Why not? like, you know, because I mean, you know. It's mohawk and my. She who cast the first stone. Look at yourself today with your umbrella on and your, and your hair like that. It's like my hair is fine. To reduce the conversation to your level, I was being serious. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think on a serious note was we were really looking at when we first had this science scholarship and we drew this ideology up to try to understand what sustainability was. And that was early 2000s where it was not even a subject, you know. And No, absolutely not. And we started off with a, a two kilometer by two kilometer box. And we thought, you know, we got all these things that you can fill in this box and you can start playing around with all these ideas and different industries and different tools and stuff. And as the more we started to learn about what sustainability was, it became more and more complex. And right now we are designing and working from a 50 by 50 cm box. That's as much as you can move because you sort of give yourself so much restrictions of things you can, can't do, can won't do, will do. So it became a huge learning curve and our entire premises was the, the first seven years we spent um, working on a simultaneous equation, for example. Yeah. So but our science sort of base was one th way of looking at the, the way that rubber was grown and Yes, we so also had the empathy. Uh, sorry, Claire, I was talking. Uh, <laughs> I've got questions. Oh, really? I want to know how, what you did. <laughs> uh, the empathy side, she's making me laugh. <laughs> it's that brolly she's holding when it's so sunny. Um, the empathy side of things is just as important as the science uh, sort of equation of it. Sorry, your turn, Claire. What did you do differently? Differently to other people or differently to... In the rubber example. What we did was we had to... We got really frustrated at at the way things were being done and we wanted to work out how to unpick that process and make it our own not that we needed ownership of of everything but the only way to actually change things there was to buy into it and that cost money it cost a lot of time and it was a lot of hassle because there were rival gangs there there were but you know we've got broad shoulders and as you say stupid hairstyles i think you said and we actually managed to I get never actually said that no okay could see in your eyes i mean i'm i might have had a curly perm then i'm not just not saying <laughs> it's like but the thing was that owning a piece of malaysia a little piece of Malaysia. <laughs> not the whole and Malaysia. Not the whole Malaysia. A tiny piece <laughs> a of Malaysia. Tiny dot. But holding a bit of it means that it comes with a lot of responsibility. And it's not a short-term project. It's a thing that grows and grows. And we, we have ties today still, 20 years later, with that plantation. And we make sure that it's been looked after properly. And, and we, hope, we hope that we're setting a model for the future. But what are some of the things that you were able to change so, in the production of that rubber? So, for example, 
with latex they're stepping so you go out there in the middle of the you know in the wee hours of the morning and you tap the tree because that's when it's cool it's shady and then it collects on a cup at the bottom you go back there before the sun sets and you you empty that latex before it solidifies again when it's cold and so there's a lot of scoring on the bark and that process as well we had to learn so it took us a while to learn from from the locals and the people who are you know their generations down they've been doing it but the hardest and then thing understanding sorry. sorry and then understanding whether we could bastardize any process and also the working conditions so for example their hands you know is there a better way of doing it is there a better way to tap the tree what sort of ecological change so it took us a long time it took us a few years well, to we, change we little yeah methods. but we didn't really influence the method of it too much but what we did influence was the hours that they were working which was like ridiculous because they didn't really know that they didn't have to work that many hours that was the thing. And also, because it's family-run kind of, it's like, you know, they wouldn't let anybody else in to take over those hours. So basically, family members were being exploited by other family members, and that was seen as a norm. And so what we tried to do was, you know, suggest to them, no, you can introduce other workers. What's so interesting to me about this story and it being the kind of origin of your material experimentation or innovation is that you were bringing the social side into it from the start. And often when we talk about sustainability and new materials, we focus either purely on the environmental side or even more narrowly just on, we were talking before about it's bio, so therefore it must be sustainable and don't even consider the way in which it's produced, how it impacts on I want to say it's surrounding plants. And the animals and the insects. And I think that's where, after 22 years, I still consider Venonomia at its infancy stage of sustainability. I mean, it's 22 years of study and actually producing and working around sustainability. And the problem with sustainability is it's ever-changing with with the economy, with social impact, with ever-changing social media, the way information has been distributed, and all those things need to be taken into consideration. So when we were working with, right at the start, we, we started to work within a double-line simultaneous equation, for example. You know, we were just working on sustainability and commerciality on two equations mathematically that how we can calculate that. Obviously, that's simplifying it because within each equation, there's so many factors that still has to be put into. So it's, so it's sort of like a little treasure box where you're constantly putting data in. But I think also, I mean, you know, because you love all of that and you really get into it and stuff. I mean, um, both of us are really, really focused on empathy. And I think empathy is a huge part still of how Vinonomi runs. And I think if you don't care about everybody you interact with and everything you do, then there's something wrong with your job, you know, and it's, so that's very important to us. I also love that you use that word empathy. It's not one we traditionally hear, even when we're talking about the humans in fashion supply chains. It's just not a common word in the sustainability, you were saying, vernacular before. Yeah, well, I think empathy for the planet is, is what it's all about. And people, empathy and it's like, for people. And, yeah, and empathy for people. And I think once we went over to Malaysia, your empathy kicks in and you bend and you sort of flex a bit because you think, well, okay, then it's going to cost a bit more if we do this, but then everyone's happier. So therefore you don't think about money and profit, mm -hmm. which is a horrible word, both horrible, horrible words, which we will never say again. Money. Oof. No, Oof. no. Do you, you want to borrow again. this? No. Uh, do you want me to share my empathy with you and lend you this? Umbrella. Do you want a five minute stint no, under the I'm brolly? I'm very no. suspicious of you, Claire. 
That seems unfair. <laughs> I think I think you know the the the, the vocabulary. Can't I think possibly the, say. <laughs> I think the vocabulary of sustainability encompasses a lot, a lot of 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 words, and I think, like you you pointed out, I think because sustainability within the fashion industry, if we're we're just speaking one industry, it went from zero to fifty, fifty to one hundred, very very quickly in a short period of time. So, a lot of people are banging on the the key words that. Are surfacing like recycling and all this stuff, and so they forget about every other factor that goes within sustainability. But I think in 21 years, I mean, it's embarrassing when people say you're pioneering. You know, you've been pioneering this for a long time. I don't, I don't look at us as pioneers. I think we're still learning, and I think, you know, we started with a pie in the sky idea. You know, which was really blue sky thinking. It was just. We we never came from a position of wanting to make money or making profit. We came yeah. from a position of thinking about what we did, and actually, if something feels wrong, we don't do it. So let's end this podcast now. <laughs> no, 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 no. But yeah. if something feels wrong, we we sorry. I'll stop. I'll be serious. If so something, cruel. I, know, I'm cruel. I don't know why you think I can take it. I can't it's take it. It's the sun. It's the sun, and you've nicked the brolly. You've um, been in Australia for too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm now going to say to you, I mean, you're a bit of an Aussie. Why? Oh, do I have a twang? No, but ah. I just happen to know that this unspoken oh. Oh. fact about you, <laughs> that no one ever talks about it, is I just got my British hush, citizenship. Hush. You can see it with school. <laughs> you were born in, were you born or just grew up in Adelaide? No, I went to school there. Ah, just yeah. a small stint. Just a small stint. You said Not as Aussie as you. Not as Aussie as me. I'm a fake Aussie anyway. <laughs> You're sleeping with one. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so sorry about that, Claire. Let's move on to Prince Charles HRH. Okay. Seamlessly. <laughs> Seamlessly. I'm sleeping with one Aussie. Okay. Yeah. I have more questions about materials. So you started with innovating around latex. Over the years, you've invented, I'm going to use that word because I think you have, a lot of different processes to make new materials. Some of them building on heritage processes and plants. I'm thinking about the nettles and some of them just made up out of the air, I reckon. Do you want to talk to us about some of those? And maybe my first question would be, tell us a bit about your setup because you've got different studios and places well, where we, you grow stuff yeah, in different always, countries. If we've found a field, for example, that we can crop, there's no point in actually transporting it across England to actually or anywhere to actually do things. So we try and find somewhere local that we can have a base. And it depends where the soil is fertile, if the plants will grow there as well. So we've got a somewhere in Norfolk, we've got somewhere in the Cotswolds, we've got a place in Scotland. We're dotted all around the place. And we don't need much room, we just sort of get on with it. And I think with us, experimenting is easy because we're not profit-led. We're not finance-led, and we, we're not looking for a long-term solution to something. For example, something doesn't have to be durable for 15 years in order for it to work, to be a success. Our success is something that can hold together, and you can wear it, or you can use it for something, and it, and it may have a shorter shelf life. I think, you know, the setup, again, like I say, we never dreamt to be in the position that we are in, and I think... As you study more and you learn more about sustainability and and how you want to run things, I mean, we we have a foundation, a Vinanomi foundation that runs off the New York studio. And we fund 34 projects, global projects around the world. So clean up projects from Mexico to the tree rivers in China. 
And when you start working that way, you start realizing you can't really travel around because it sort of defeats the purpose. So we, we have an Asian studio that handles all of the Asia projects. And then we have projects in, uh, we have a New York studio that handles all of North America and American projects. And then we're based in the UK where we handle UK and Europe projects. So we keep our carbon footprint down. You said to me before that you were invited to speak at COP26 and you thought that it defeats its own object, everybody flying <laughs> yeah. to a conference to talk about reducing their carbon footprint. No, everybody flying to Scotland to pat each other on the back. It's sort of like a rich men's conference where everybody was there going, look, you know, we're rich and powerful and ha, 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 this is what you should be doing. All right, then I've got a question about success and how you define it. And I'm, I'm going to just use this moment to throw in some of the things that listeners would definitely see as being emblematic of your success. You've dressed Michelle Obama. You collaborate frequently with Debbie Harry. She's been in your shows. You've just made a film that she stars in. I mean, I just want to say Mary Berry, but it's not Mary Berry. Who is it? Prue No, <laughs> the, the rival. British you can't possibly... How dare you? No, Prue's coming for you now. <laughs> Should I cut yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she doesn't live off. You'll never here, get you know? a cake from her. <laughs> <laughs> but the level of creative collaborators that you've worked with is impressive, shall we say. But I'm presuming that that isn't how you define the success of Vinonomi as a conversation think, starter, or maybe it is. How do you no, define it? Definitely, no, definitely not. not. Definitely not. I mean, not. You know, no disrespect to the collaborators that we've got, but it's not about them. It's about what we've achieved in our heads in terms of... So, for example, with the nettle fabric, it was about making something that nobody had done before in, in a way that was about playing and producing something that was really new and we love it when we come up with something new and that could be a film it could be a textile it could be anything we like doing something new and then it's satisfying i think the level of success for me i i think you know we were walking that day vin and i and, and we say look you know after 21 22 years of doing this what is the proudest moment okay and i, I can pinpoint two in my head one when the museum start archiving your work and you're leaving a legacy and your data and your research, like the VNA. That's one. You know, it's always going to be there for the public to go see, learn, touch, criticize, debate, argue. And if the VNA is still around in a hundred years, great. You know, somebody might walk be. in and go, who's been an army? And the other one is what really surprised us was during lockdown. So when the first week of lockdown happened, and we were the first few companies to actually went into making masks for our local NHS. Oh, I knew that, yeah. And we didn't have the manpower and the machines. So what we did was we put a call out. So our, our really dear friend, Belle Jacobs, who you know, and she wrote a piece for us and our lovely friend from The Telegraph did an article for us and we called out in Paris Match and various new journalists said, you know, we basically called out to all our, our supporters and people saying, hey, we'll send you the instructions, could you make a mask? And, and within a week, we had people showing from Canada, from Russia, from Australia, from New Zealand, and everybody came up to this. And that was a real, yeah, that was a good moment, a real good yeah. moment when you thought, we touch so many people around the world that when we now ask for help and asking people to sew just two masks each, yeah. it was amazing when the response that we got. And that was, that was a, good moment. a good moment. If you had to unpack why that speaks of success to you, is it because of the networking of an idea or of your ideas? Is that what it is? I often think there's something 
you know, when we were talking before we were recording about how hard it seems the industry finds it to decouple fashion from flogging stuff. But if you take away the commerce, there's so many other things that fashion can do. It can communicate. It can, like you say, find solutions to big ideas. It can change connect. social, you know, it's social standing. I think, I yeah. think that was such a good moment, not because, you know, you all of a sudden realize there's people who are sewing and believing in the brand. It's not because they could wear, a, you, because you can't wear a Vinonomi t-shirt and walk around and show off. Like, you know, I there see, isn't that product out there. But I can't see success in a different way in that, we, we regularly, without realising it, walk around going, no, let's do this. And then often we do it, which is great. And because you, we just pick on ridiculous things and we just try it and sometimes it works. I mean, like doing the film that we did, that was a response to COVID and everyone was really frustrated. They couldn't do anything. So we thought, surely you can make a film via Zoom and you can just film, you know, and then sort of 82 actresses and actors later, we did it. And that was great. That was a success for me to actually just solve the problem of what the hell is everyone going to do in lockdown? Plus, we want to actually tell a story of where we're all going to end up in the future. So it was kind of like when we sat at the press screening of it and then it went on breakfast TV the next morning and all of that, I thought, well, that little whim we had of filming people via Zoom actually worked. Okay, tell us about the new film. What's it called and what is the big idea? Well, the new film is called Kepler-62F, which is a real, potentially habitable planet. Of course, we've had to add in the fictitious uh, notion that we can teleport there. And we're looking <laughs> to the year 2503. And going on the back of Stephen Hawkins' sort of premise that we will have to find a new planet in the next 100 years, we've waited for the van to go we're past. In the countryside. And now we're, <laughs> we looked at ways in which the planet would be thriving or not in the future and with the aid of uh, these wonderful actors and actresses we've just explored really our doom i would have to say really in some way because the planet is dying there's nothing we can do we have to go and live somewhere else and what would that do to us as a civilization what would happen when the air quality goes what would happen when the plant and animal life has gone well, you said to me before, I said, what would we be wearing? And you said that will not be our primary consideration. It wasn't. No, even, it was funnily enough, as, as, fashion, as known as fashion people, we didn't really think about it because we're too busy thinking about the bigger picture of breathing and survival and war. And what people would be wearing was kind of secondary. I mean, we threw some garments on some of the actors, but it wasn't like a thought process of how it's been made. Because I think, as I mentioned to you before, that... We're wrapped up in this circle of sustainability and fashion, and we couldn't be thinking about that. It's irrelevant. The planet is much bigger than that. And it didn't really cross our minds. We did throw ourselves in as actors, not just <laughs> be, not only because of ego, but yeah. because we wanted to uh, just show how ridiculous fashion can be. I think, like, you know what you said before about fashion what we do and it's not really we don't make a product to sell and we make clothes but it's it's just a medium like an artist that uses canvas to paint we use fashion because fashion is a language that everybody speaks speaks to everyone regardless of of religion race language and fashion touched you even before you were born your mom was choosing out the outfits you were wearing when you're in her belly you know it's something that's so universal like language but even more universal than language but i think when we're doing the film it just came to the notion that 
that's fashion is so ridiculous. And you, you pointed out just now, you know, fashion could do so much more. You could be inventing, touching social lives and doing so much because there's nothing else to invent within fashion. The human body has been covered up. Every every piece of garment that is essential has been already done. So, And I think as the film went on, you realised that any, any fashion garment really should be focusing on survival. So yeah. protecting you from UV radiation, protecting you from from the elements and incorporating breathing apparatus into it. And it really was not fashionable. I mean, occasionally some character would pop up in the film that was only focused on fashion and they looked even more ridiculous than they do now. (laughs) Having just spent a joyful couple of hours of you having lunch, thank you very much, you're not doom-mongers, gloomy, miserableists, or you don't appear to be. Um, (laughs) And your work certainly isn't. There's so much joy in your shows and in the creative output that you give. But... I guess my question is, how do you balance that with this? You've just spent time imagining our end. I think it was easy when we're mid-pandemic and uh, everybody's moaning their heads off. And you think, yeah, it'll only take a couple more pandemics to knock half the bloody world out. So it's like, you know, this is real. It's a real thing. And writing this script was pretty easy mid-pandemic. And I think when you switch your head away from the fun and frivolity of fashion, the underpinning of doom and gloom is there. We don't want to gloss over what really is happening. I think by nature, Vin and I and our studio and everybody that works with us, we, and again, I say they work with us and not for us. And I think we have that sort of culture in the studio. I think anybody that says that they work for Vin and Omi are in the wrong job. And I think we, we all tend to gravitate towards fun. Although we look a lot in negative spaces, you have to, yeah. You have to realize that there's a lot of fun in innovating. I'd say stupidity. Stupidity, fun. I've got a tuft on my head, if anybody can see me now. <laughs> you what? I've got a little tufty thing pointing. And I think we're not the typical <laughs> sustainable designers that design magnolia. I mean, we're kind of crazy. And, you know, we don't do anoraks and beige and, you know, everything that looks like. You know, you just come up from Soho Farmhouse or something. You know what I love is when I have like a plan for questions and they go awry and that's fine, but then you have to find a way to get back to the ones you really want. And I was like, how am I going to get back to Charles? How am I going to get back to Charles? I'm getting back to HRH, Prince Charles, because you said to me before, he has a wicked sense of humour. He does. And uh, the thing I think about Prince Charles is that he's, you know, the things that happen with the royal family are often sort of paramount in people's minds. And when you meet him, He's very funny. He's very relaxed. All right, so I'm glad we got back here. You've been working on an extraordinary project with Prince Charles and Highgrove House. Yep. Which began with nettles. Yes. Tell us about this. Before, I was asking all these questions about the process, the traditional process of turning nettles into usable fibre. It's really interesting. Tell us. Okay, well, we started looking at uh, country estates and looking at the waste that happens in country estates because they they do own a lot of this country. And I think it was important to look at when they're strimming plants, weeds, or what they call weeds, or in a way useless material for them, what do they do with it? Some do compost it, but not many, actually. And they leave it at the side of the fields to decay. And there may be some benefit to the environment in that, but often there are better uses for those waste plant fibres. And we're also interested in the, we have a 
an, a train going past. We have a car revving up, and we're in the middle of nowhere. It's amazing. <laughs> and but the thing about estates is that it's not only the plant material; it was also their waste plant pots, their anything that they throw away. We wanted to look at that in great detail, and we were talking to Prince Charles about this. And we said, oh, we're focusing on nettles at the moment. And he said, um, nettles? I have tons of nettles. Come down to Highgrove and explore my nettles. For people who are listening who maybe you don't live in Britain, you don't have a clue what we're talking about, Army, give us like a really couple of lines on Prince Charles's organic vibes. <laughs> so Prince, Prince Charles, if you want to talk about pioneer of ecoism, sustainabilism or whatever, he he's really pioneered this. I mean, from the crazy prince that hugs trees when he was young. And he's a real activist when it comes to that. You know, he's, he's biofueled his cars and his the systems that you would think in an old estate like Highgrove. I mean, when we went there, we thought we knew everything about sustainability and we walked in there with our heads up and we walked up with our tails in between our legs because he knew more than we did. You and know? <laughs> presumably there's lots of people who are working on the estate who are putting in practice these organic oh, yeah. processes. I mean, it we, was... We, the, we form a close bond with yeah, the head gardeners, don't we? Exactly, and the waste yeah. system that they have and the recycling systems and stuff. They He's were, kind of using it to experiment prove a point isn't he yeah. exactly and high but also he actually practically uses it to run the house as well which is great he, i mean the pools that filter the waste from the house you know and then produce drinkable water at the end are very real i mean it's all really happening it's not a it's publicity not a stunt no. it's uh, it really happens and the and the gardeners that we interact with that who are all been amazing over the years they really really follow through his uh, wishes really and i think you know for us being punks and with a manifesto <laughs> that we don't work with Yeah, anybody. I mean, the question has to be, how on earth do you meet Prince Charles? You have to tell us, otherwise people well, are like, what do you mean? Well, do you move it, in those well, circles? It was a funny story because we received an invitation separately. So I was in my studio and we have separate studios purely because I'm autistic as well. So I need my and own annoying. space. And annoying. You're annoying. And annoying. And I received an email and I, I sort of leaned out of my studio and looked into his window and I said, do you get an email? He says, I get emails all the time. I said, no, but do you get a email? And he says, <laughs> I may have. And I thought, well, if I'm invited for tea and he's not, that would be really, really shit. Sorry, pardon my French. But And then we sort of ran and huddled together away from everyone and we went, oh, look at this. And he went, Oh, yeah. I thought it was a joke because one, why would we randomly get an email? Two, it was in Soho House. And we thought, that is ridiculous. Why would the prince be in Soho House? So I decided to wear a onesie, which I did. I wore a onesie. Like a, a unicorn onesie? It was a dinosaur onesie. Um, Am I psychic? I think I'm psychic. Yeah, which really was the dress code. It wasn't the dress code because there wasn't a dress code or anything. So I just thought, I presume there should be a dress code or something, right? Or protocol or whatever. I did bring a, a, a pair of... A tux. I, I did bring a jacket. It just a tux. So as we walked towards the building, all the Vogue editors were there and stuff. And I went, oh no, this is real. And they all looked at did me Did you and they jump went, in a phone box, take off the ones and put on the tux? I, I had to rush to the toilet because one of them turned around to say, what are you wearing? And I, saw, so I thought, oh, this is real. And he says, what, what do you mean it's fake? I said, but where's the security? I mean, we're just walking in. He's not just going to walk in and sit down, is he? So it turned out to be real. So I had to rush to the toilet and change. And Yeah, you thought I'd set you up. Yeah, and they sort of shoved us in the front together with all the editors right right at the start of the walkthrough. And we thought, oh, he's never going to know who we are. 
the first thing he said to us when we were introduced, and he says, I know who you are. You're the weird designers that turn, turn rubbish into clothes. Okay, yeah. so fast forward, and you've been working on this project to turn nettles from Highgrove into, well, three dresses? Three. No, more no, than the three. First one. It, uh, it's seven outfits in total. In Did that. we? Yes. Seven Spread in the first around. show. Seven dresses, which is not a lot. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the process of turning these nettles into fibre. Well, the, the old process of working with nettle is very, very slow. And it's a beautiful process, but it takes an age and we're very impatient. So we, our task was to find new ways of working with nettle. And using that fibre, we started off by rotting or retting the nettle as you do and then removing the fiber from that then we added some new processes into it to actually bleach it equally and ecoly is that word no? <laughs> i think e-co-ly. it's actually uh, e-colize. Yeah, e-colize. Like a food poisoning e-coly. Poisoning. yeah eco yeah with e-coli we use <laughs> yeah exactly and uh, we then found a way to bond it that was the task was to bond the fibers in instead a way of that, hand spinning because that was too time consuming yeah hand spinning we it's so laborious and very beautiful but not for us I mean, we, we haven't got enough time to do that. And so we had a, we only had like a, a short window to do that in time for the show. So we made seven garments. We, oh, we mixed two of them with our raw fleece as well, just to see how it, how it mixed with that. And that worked really well. And I think the task worked really well because since then we've gone on to produce lots of garments with the nettle fibre. And we find it mixes very well with other fibres and we can just do lots of different things with it. The best thing about Charles is that he lets us play Mm. And he said to us, um, you know, take anything you like. We do take lots of plant waste. We've, we worked with willow and uh, cellulose fibre mm. for the last collection. You, you said before in the garden, what's that? We could turn that into something. Do you see possibility in every hedgerow? Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah because <laughs> why not? Yeah, if you don't explore every single thing you see, what's the point of having that creative brain? I mean, we took his plant pots and... It was very hard to recycle type of plastic that plant pots were made from. We turned that into jewellery for the last catwalk. You spent all this time studying what was going on, where the nettles were growing, what insects were there, what else was there. Because if you take them out, what happens? And before we started recording, we were talking about that and you were saying to me, fashion and sustainability has got a bit of a blind spot on this. They think that if something is organic, in inverted commas, or bio or just a plant ergo it's sustainable but they don't consider what is sustainable harvesting what does that look like you can't just take everything because it's plant-based there's so much understanding that still needs to happen so when we say we study what we can extract it's really understanding why are we extracting because it doesn't just make sense just to for PR sake or for mm. the shock value sake of saying, oh, you know, we've done something with nettles or, oh, we've done something with cow parsley. But it, it's such an interesting thing to consider and hopefully listeners will, I reckon people will write to us about this. We have to consider the cascading impacts that we hadn't anticipated. If everybody just took all the nettles. Yeah, but that, that's why we were working with estates where, for good reasons or bad, they already strim vast amounts of acreage of nettles we, we were only focusing on the things that 
would be streamed. We're not focusing on wandering around the countryside picking up new stuff. So yeah. we're looking at waste. Then maybe the broader industry can work out how to crop uh, those nettles in a in a really sustainable mm. way. And we sort of we like to lead the way and then leave the project and move on to something else. Like with chestnuts. I mean, chestnuts casings are lying around the countryside everywhere. And if we find a way to do that and bind it for a longer period of time than we have at the moment, then maybe people will pick up on that. You dyed your chestnut dress with oak leaves and... Beetroot. Beetroot. Yeah. yeah. It lasted how long? Well, it didn't last very long. <laughs> well, I mean, it's still the, there, the, but it was also... Yeah, it was it's also, just really in small pieces. Right? Is it a puddle? Starting to no, 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 um, no. It's definitely not a puddle, but it... A no, vapour. No, no, it was funny because the VNA... Part of the problem is the, the stitching that we used was very biodegradable. So it's not really the... It's just the leather. It's also the stitching that we yeah. used is very biodegradable. I mean, you wouldn't get far on holiday with it. And what's the name of the planet? Kepler 62F. You mean you haven't already booked your ticket? <laughs> I'm going to book it now. It's too hot here. Yeah. Can you make me some outerwear that incorporates this shade-giving umbrella? Yeah, we'll recycle so that, that, that Is that what we're ending on? Just go naked, it's so sustainable. Oh, no, exactly. You know. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank, thank, you. thank you for having us. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.